Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and their inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, the chair of the committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the wonderful Colleen Shipley in conversation with Barbara DeLeo. Colleen's book, Under the Radar, is inspired by the true story of eight women posted to a top-secret mission in Blenheim from November 1942 to May 1944. The story of loss, healing and friendship provides a vivid snapshot of life in New Zealand during World War II. Colleen discusses her inspiration, fascinating research discoveries and her road to publication. Thanks to everyone who made the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival such a success. The 2023 event is being held from July 21 to 23 and more details will be available soon. For now, please enjoy Colleen Shipley speaking to Barb DeLeo. Tēnā koutou katoa. Thanks, Belinda, for the um, introduction. How wonderful to see such a huge audience and how lucky we are to not only have a Marlborough writer at the Marlborough Book Festival, but a Marlborough writer writing about a Marlborough story. So it's wonderful to have Colleen Shipley here today. Uh, Colleen is um, obviously the author of Wrens Under the Radar, and when I came in uh, about half an hour ago, Colleen said to me, oh, we're, we're clashing, our colours are clashing. And I said, well, one of us matched the book cover. <laughs> So speaking of the book cover, Colleen, can you tell us about this fabulous um, painting on the front of the book to start with? I can. So um, we always uh, say don't judge a book by its cover, but um, be honest, we do. Um, And um, because I was going through um, a printer myself um, and doing a wee bit of self-publishing, I wanted to make sure the cover reflected the story um, and um, I just happened to know uh, someone very well who was um, just starting out in his art career. So Jason um, Fastia is um, a local boy um, who was uh, my son's best friend, is my son's best friend, and um, he agreed to do the book cover and so I drove down to the end of... Um, Rats Road, and took a, a picture of the, the silhouette of the hills. Um, and that's what um, forms the backdrop to the cover and described him what, um, what the wrens wore. And this is what he came up with. And it was, it was pretty spot on, I reckon. Beautiful colours. Yeah. And for those who, um, it's probably only one of you who hasn't read the book, well, you can buy it out there. Um, <laughs> Rats Road is the, is the location for the majority of the story, and we're going to talk about a lot about that this evening. So uh, Colleen is the librarian at Marlborough Girls College. Um, so how can you tell us, to start with Colleen, how... Um, what really what your writer's journey has been and how being a librarian, a, 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 an avid reader, has played into that? Well, my role model really would have to be Margaret Mahi because she was a librarian initially first as well. And, you know, I keep thinking about Margaret. I met her a couple of times um, and I thought, well, she wrote a book. Why can't I? And um, it was um, started way back when I um, 
had moved here with my husband and I was reading an article and uh, I think it was North and South at the time about these women that lived at the end of Rats Road and the, the secrecy and the, and I thought, wow, that's a very own spy novel. I wonder if I could do something with that. Um, and that progressed to a conversation I had with Mandy Hager, who is um, another of New Zealand's um, well-known writers, young adult. Um, when you're a librarian, you get to, to meet a few authors, which is really cool. Um, and um, she said that, oh, well, why don't you write a book? And I said, well, I don't know where to start. And she was um, the person who was running a course at Fisheraya Polytechnic and um, just happened to, that the course was in the weekends. And for two years, I flew to Wellington um, once a month and um, undertook the creative writing courses. Um, my daughter was living in Wellington at the time, so it was, was quite good to sort of sort of pop that in there. We visit with Laura as well. Yeah, so um, that is how the book came to, to fruition. Um, is this your first It's book? my first, huh? yes. Um, people ask me what comes next. Sometimes I think I might be like uh, Harper Lee and J.D. Salinger. <laughs> um, but if there's another uh, little hidden story about Marlborough out there that somebody thinks should be told, come and see me. <laughs> yeah. So it must have taken a huge amount of research. Apologies for the quality of some of these photos, but we wanted to give you an idea of, of this is the house um, at Rats Road uh, where the Wrens lived. Um, how did you go about researching everything to do? And, and how much of the book is fact and how much is fiction? So the the girls themselves, the characters, are my imagination. They're fictional, but they are based on everything that I read. Um, and three quarters of the book is fact. If um, you're reading it and you come across something that seems a little bit unreal, it probably is true. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I wonder that, you know, real life is, mm. is more fascinating than my imagination. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I just started with the research. There was a book, there was books in my school library that had these stories in. So the, the um, Rapara history um, has a great chapter in it. Um, there was a book about women in the... Um, during the Second World War and the contribution they made to New Zealand. And there was a chapter in there. And so and then I got onto the old um, computer and into the internet. And uh, I guess I'm a research librarian um, way back. Um, and those skills really came into play. Um, and you start going down, you know, it's a little bit like these conspiracy theorists, I suppose, that you start going down little rabbit holes and you find little gems hidden. Um, there's um, something I'll read to you later that comes from the, the um, Navy's um, Communications Association. Um, but one of my um, really unique finds was 
um, when I was researching near the end of the book, I knew that, and I hope I don't give too many spoilers here, but I knew that one of the wrens had gone to the um, to the ceremony held in England to commemorate winning the Second World War. And that happened about 18 months after the war was over. And they took lots and lots of troops over. And I was just Googling it and thought, wonder if I can find out a bit more about that parade. And I came across on the internet an old BBC clip. It was probably about an hour long. And I watched this parade that I've written about in the book. Um, and that was that was really exciting. You I saw also, the New Zealanders too. In I that saw clip. the New Zealanders yeah. marching. The wrens. I saw the wrens marching in that in that parade, and that that was really exciting. Um, another uh, couple of things. I knew the girls had gone and stayed at Langley Dale for weekends. That was sort of a, a little bit of a retreat for them. Um, and I thought, hmm, okay, I know where Langley Dale is. And then I had to do a wee bit of research and find out who owned it, rang them up, uh, made contact, um, have become quite close friends with the owners at, at Langley Dale. And they took me through the house, through the homestead to have a look. Um, and um, we'll touch on that a wee bit later. But um, we went to the the granary where they held dances and two of the um, there's, a, there's a wall that, that divides the, the upstairs and there's an archway and all over the archway is all these signatures so it was a tradition for people to write their name on the wall when they attended dances there and two of the wren's names were on the wall um, I think I could have found more of them if I had time to look but that was exciting and I was just thinking about that the other day and I thought Shall I wonder if they were breaching secrecy by putting their names up there? Right, because mm. there were very strict secrecy laws. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. So this is the house that's still standing on Rats Road? It's still standing on, on Rats Road. We're going to be um, doing lots of drive-bys tomorrow to have a look. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you'd said to me earlier, Colleen, that you had listened to a Radio New, Radio New Zealand clip as well. Yes, um, and that was found just through following that that rabbit hole as well, and it was um, Bunty Longquit, who I'll, I'll share it with you here, who I based Betty on um, because she was the one who had um, spoken the most and, and let people interview her 50 years after that secrecy was lifted. Um, and it was an interview with her. Um, it was two hours long um, and it was done in two parts with Gordon McLaughlin. So that's going to ring a bell with some people. And how long ago would that have been? Because he was around in sort of like the 80s and the 90s, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, she was She was quite elderly when, mm. when it was recorded. Um, so I think the interview was the uh, 1980s mm. sometime. Yeah. There is a reference in the back of the book, right. I think. Yeah. That, I don't know whether it's still on the internet. I haven't checked, but... You could, you could give it a go. Right. And yeah. you said something about John Neal as well, helping you out. Yes. So that, that came about, and it's funny how these research things happen. Um, I saw um, advertised uh, an afternoon at Bradshaw Park at the museum, and um, John was going to talk about telecommunications during the, the uh, Second World War, and I thought, 
hmm, okay, well, that might fill some gaps for me. So I went along and I popped up and he mentioned the wrens just briefly at the very end. And I went and um, told him I was writing this book and, and he was lovely. He explained some of the technology to me, which was good. He showed me what a Morse key looks like um, and explained how it all worked. But he had also communicated with two of the wrens and um, he had asked them questions and they had sent back answers because he'd been planning on writing a, an article, which I, I'm not sure that he ever ever got it done, um, but he'd been planning on writing a, an article for um, a, a magazine. But he lent me his research, which was very kind of him and very valuable. And you said that, that Betty, who's the main character, is uh, based on... Uh, one of uh, Bunty. 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 Yes. And here is a picture of the eight wrens who lived at Rats Road. And which one of these is Bunty? Uh, these pictures are pirated, sorry. <laughs> terrible thing to say for a librarian. Um, I think that's Bunty in the top um, on the side. Yeah. So the, they had all come from Wellington, from Naval, Naval Intelligence in Wellington to Rats Road? No. No. Not, not, not direct, not directly, yes, but um, only for, for a very brief time. Mm -hmm. So some of them didn't even have their uniform when they hopped on that ferry and, and came through to, to Blenheim. Um, they were handpicked by intelligence um, they were like an honor roll of uh, head girls and uh, prefects um, all but one had a university degree um, some of them about three of them I think were already in the naval forces um, Bunty had had a long journey herself to get there trying all sorts of different um, careers trying to help the war effort um, but one of them yeah didn't even have a uniform when she hopped on that that ferry and they didn't really know what they were going to except that they were being sent to Blenheim that was all they knew when they were on that ferry and so their mission here was top secret what did the locals <laughs> What did the locals believe about these eight women? And um, there was one other. There was one other woman living at the house. And then we had the the, uh, the guards on the on the gate. What did the locals think? What did the Rapara people think? Well, the the um, there might be some people in here who sort of know what their their parents, their grandparents thought. Um, but the word was um, from reading Bunty's um, stuff, as the locals thought they were. They were just radar. There was a ra it was a radar station they were managing, and they just went along with that. Um, there was a whole lot more to it. Um, it was one of its kind in New Zealand. There were um, stations similar in other parts of the world, um, but it had special equipment. So that equipment was able to to photograph the Morse codes coming through. Um, so they were getting the Morse codes coming through primarily from Japanese uh, subs submarines. and ships. Yep. And then they were uh, 
deciphering, decoding the Morse code, and there was something to do with the... So can you explain to us the different jobs? I think you've got a, an actual official explanation of what they were doing, which this, might be helpful. This will help it much um, better than I can explain. Um, I've often watched authors do this at talks where they put, get their glasses out and put them on <laughs> yeah. Look, look at you. Look Feels at you go. very important. <laughs> On arrival at Blenheim, they were to operate an REB station. Though even those initials were deliber deliberately misleading, the true title was RFP, which stood for Radio Fingerprinting. To the average person, any form of wireless telegraphy sounds very much the same, a jumble of dots and dashes, but a skilled operator needs to pick up another's fist Rapara not only concentrated on listening for various Japanese fists, but it photographed them as well, and this was the difference. The brain of the station was a special radio receiver sent to New Zealand by the Admiralty. So this is um, English, and just a, a wee bypass. Oh, no, I'll tell you when I've finished about that. Um, it incorporated a cathode cathode ray tube which gave a continuous picture of the dots and dashes made by Japanese wireless telegraphy office of operators afloat and ashore. Camera equipment photographed the display and the film when processed was examined minutely by the classifiers who tried to establish the source of every single signal. Their principal targets were call signs and these and other results were passed to Naval Intelligence in Wellington over a special scrambler telephone. So the, the Wrens couldn't communicate with anybody um, outside by phone because the, the only phone they had was a scrambler telephone. Um, and there is a point, and Barbara and I haven't talked about this we sideline, it's another rabbit hole, but there's a point in the book where they needed to contact somebody, but they, they had to send it via scrambler phone to Wellington, who then relayed it back to, to Blenheim that there was an emergency that they had to attend to. Um, and I said I'd tell you a little bit more about the radio receiver. Um, that was invented by a man called um, Merlin Minshall. And he was a lieutenant um, that was... Um, and a little bit of disgrace because um, he'd done some, he was a spy basically, he'd done some, some challengeable um, things and he, they were going to send him to Fiji um, for the rest of the war. But uh, he sort of wrote all over the papers and he got sent to New Zealand instead. Um, and he was in charge of the, um, the station, um, not in situ, but in charge of it. Um, with another lieutenant, and um, he was a bit of a character, and I have read his biography. He is, um, his naval officer in England was Ian Fleming, who most of you all know was the writer of the James Bond um, characters and books, um, and the word goes that um, in Fleming based the James Bond character um, partly on Merlin Minshall, who um, was in charge of this new technology that the Wrens were using. So, side story. So why Marlborough? 
Why why not in Wellington? Why Marlborough? What why, well, why was, the choice? Well, it was easier choice? to be um, secretive. Marlborough was um, a very busy town full of uh, um, people at the Delta. So the army at the Delta, mm -hmm. um, Woodburn was, was a big training um, base for the Air Force. Um, but also they could slot these wrens sort of, you know, in, in the, the outback. Um, we were, um, we had Cook Strait at our a, at a doorstep and they did want to guard that. But also Cloudy Bay as well. That Cloudy Bay was thought of as somewhere where an attack could be made um, during the Second World War. So... Um, Marlborough fitted the bill. Right. So we're going to talk about some of the things that happen in uh, the story a little bit later. Um, but let's just focus in on why you chose to tell the story of the Wrens through one person. And, um, you know, how did you come to that decision rather than rather than perhaps writing a nonfiction book or putting it from a number of different points of view? Yeah. Um, I thought about maybe should I do this as a non-fiction book? And then I felt like um, I didn't have enough information. When I first read this about the Wrens, it had only been a couple of years after they were allowed to talk. So that was 40 and, years they signed a non-disclosure. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and it was about the same time we were getting stuff on the TV about Bletchley Park and um, those those places because they'd same, signed the same sorts of agreements. Um, and then I thought, no, I, I want to put more feel into it, more emotion. So I created my own characters. Um, I was going to write it from two perspectives, one of the classifiers and one of the tele telegraphers because they were um, awake at different mm -hmm. times of the day doing their job. Um, but it was a, I was a first-time writer and that started to get too hard. So then I took Betty's perspective um, and slotted into to a feel there and I, I thought, yeah, no, this is, this is right. Um, a few times um, I wanted to tell a side that Betty wouldn't necessarily have, have known and um, those who have read it know that I've slotted some, some correspondence in there which um, was quite fun to write. Right. Would you uh, like to read us a little bit of um, Betty's perspective and Betty's story? And can you just lead us into... I will, I will, because it's... Um, so, uh, like I said a moment ago, I wanted to put some emotion in there, but I didn't... I knew that the girls were perhaps quite feisty. They had to be, to, to be where they were. Um, and this scene here is um, when the Wrens got to, to Blenheim, um, only one of them knew how to drive. And they were given an army truck to get around and to go to town and get their um, essentials. Um, so the rest of the team had to learn to drive. Um, and so uh, Betty's just been with Rita in, in town and, and they're on their way home. At least traffic was scarce on the rural roads of Marlborough and the gravel meant maintaining a slow pace. I wrenched the gears as I manoeuvred them into position and my slow release of the clutch was going to need some refining. My progress was slow but steady and I was beginning to feel proud of myself and gain confidence 
when I realised we were approaching the school. Um, the school I'm talking about is Rapara School, and Rapara School had um, a, some army base there. My nerves kicked in when I saw some of the soldiers at the fence line alongside the road in drill formation. Perhaps I should stop here and let you take over. No way, you're doing fine, said Rita. Just keep going and ignore them. I focused on the grey road directly ahead of me and tried to imagine I had blinkers on, like a horse, to block the view of the soldiers. But as a consequence, I got a terrible fright when one of them ran across the road in front of me. I swerved to the side and the wheels crunched in the loose gravel at the side of the road. I wrenched the wheel to pull the truck back onto the road and overcorrected. By the time I'd straightened up, Rita was crying with laughter and I could hear the soldiers laughing through the closed windows. They were still watching me when I stopped at the end of the road. Rita tried to redeem herself with instructions to change into first after checking for other traffic as we turned the corner. The truck hiccuped and we jerked to a halt. I looked accusingly at Rita. You've just stalled. We all do it when we're learning. Start again and ease the clutch out slowly. I was still seething with humiliation, and after turning into Rats Road, I decided I couldn't take any more. I put my foot on the brake and the track ground to a halt in the middle of the road. I'm walking from here. I jumped out and slammed the door. Rita frowned as she slid across to the driver's seat. She wound the window down as she drew alongside me. You sure? I wasn't ready to speak. I nodded and carried on. The walk helped my breathing return to normal, but I still felt humiliated. I had my blinkers on again when I passed the guard at the gate. Bob usually had a smart remark for us as we passed, but I think he could sense the storm brewing in me. Don't give up, lassie, was all he said as I walked past. From the hall, I could hear that Rita was in the kitchen, so I headed upstairs, threw myself on the bed. I hadn't behaved like this since I was a teenager, but it felt good. I was ashamed of the way I reacted and huddled into the covers. Huddling into the covers had a familiar feeling. My mother had always let me brew away my tantrums in my bedroom. It was tea time when Rachel knocked at the door and poked her head in. I'm sorry I laughed. Betty, I'd forgotten what it feels like learning to drive, and the truck is a beast to learn in. Are you coming down for tea? I'm not sure I've forgiven you, but I am hungry. We'll take a different route for the next lesson. Who says there'll be another lesson? There will be. We're resilient, and we don't give up. That's why we're here. Thank you. So while a lot of the story happens at the Rats Road house, what I loved, um, and I've lived in Marlborough for 20 years, and I felt by the time I'd finished your book, ashamed that I didn't know more about the history of Marlborough. Um, one of the things I particularly liked was the, 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 the community involvement. Even though there was that secrecy, um, the way that the community, especially at church um, and, you know, at the Anzac parade, all of those sorts of things, how the community wrapped around the girls. And I really loved uh, the scenes at Langleydale. So we've got a, a bit of a grainy picture. That's a recent picture of Langleydale, isn't it? And where exactly is Langleydale? So Langleydale is up, most of the people here probably know, it's, it's up the North Bank. So Langleydale um, in its time was um, a very um, beautiful homestead. Um, the owners of it at the moment um, are restoring it, 
which is great. It was part of um, Marlborough's history at the time. Um, one of the governors, when, when Marlborough signed away from being part of Nelson, that was where the governor stayed um, in, in one of the, be the bedrooms there. They were very well-to-do, um, prestigious family in, in the community. So it was a big farm? A big farm. A big farm. Yeah. And the girls... Flax mills is where they got their money from as well. And the girls and Betty uh, went to stay there, sort of as a... And um, there were some really interesting bits about, um, you know, the, the real Langleydale and the things that you wove in there as well. I wonder if you could read us an extract from Langleydale as well. I All the ginger gems and the... And the um, what else was there? Uh, what else did you have? All those beautiful um, spreads at church. Pikelets, the pikelets, scones, lots of scones. Yes. <laughs> so there was a big spread at Langleydale. But if you could read us a little bit about uh, Betty at Langleydale. Is it Betty at Langleydale that you're reading? Yes, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So this is um, Betty and and the um, a couple of the, the girls had been there for um, afternoon tea uh, to cheer themselves up. Um, one day, but um, she'd been invited there for the weekend. So this is a wee bit later in the story. On my last visit, we'd been ushered into the drawing room with haste, but now I had a chance to take in the true beauty of the house. The entrance hall featured an impressive staircase. The steps were shallow and perfect in size. I could imagine the colonial ladies of the house gliding down them in their long ball gowns. I commented to Mrs Taylor on how easy the stairs were to navigate as she escorted me to the guest bedroom. The house wasn't always like this, Betty. There's another staircase on the other side of the house with a gradient that makes you grip the rail tightly. This part of the house was added in 1905, the last of five additions to what was initially just a cob dairy. The main part of the house was built in 1857 and it was a humble two-storey, three-bedroom house. I was doing my best to memorise the route we were taking. With additions added at various times, there seemed to be no pattern to the layout of the house. Most of the bedrooms we passed were of modest size, but Mrs. Shale, Mrs. Taylor showed me into a larger room with a double four-poster bed. This was the master bedroom in the original house, but we use it as a guest room now because it's next to the bathroom and toilet. It was used by Governor Gore Brown when he came to make the arrangements for Blenheim to be separated by Nelson. So the house has some history. I'll tell you more over a cup of tea if you like. I'll give you a moment to freshen up. If you turn left at the bottom of the stairs when you come down, you'll find me in the kitchen. Put some outdoor clothes on. I'll show you around the property. So I put my suitcase on the chair and headed to the toilet where my eyes nearly popped out of my head. The toilet bowl was unlike anything I had seen before. Its shape was hum somehow aristocratic and the vivid blue spray of flowers painted down the front of the bowl was unmistakable. The mark inside the bowl confirmed my suspicions. I couldn't wait to get back to the house and tell the other girls I had used a Royal Dalton toilet. I was still giggling to myself as I changed into slacks and comfy shoes. The kitchen was just as I had imagined, only twice the size. A large table ran down the middle, and the wall space was occupied by sinks, ovens, and benches. Mrs. Taylor was pouring tea. But what caught my eye was a network of green knotted string taking form below 
a row of large nails in the beam across the middle of the room. My meagre contribution to the war effort, Betty. I make camouflage nets. Quite a few of us country women are making these. It's far more fun than knitting socks. Though working in the kitchen can get complicated as the net grows. I got tangled in it once and Charlie had to cut me out. <laughs> I was laughing so hard he thought he was going to cut me with a knife. I'm much better at manoeuvring around the net now. I hope you don't mind us having a cuppa in the kitchen. It's just the two of us. The boys have gone out to do a round of sheep and Cook offered to go and tend to the chocks. So those nails are still in the kitchen wow. at Langley Dale. Wow. Yeah. So the name wasn't Taylor, but everything else there was the real Dalton toilet, the Yeah, yeah. I, when I was shown around the, the, the house myself and I saw that, I thought, oh, my goodness, I have Got to put to this put in the story in. because yeah. my mouth just dropped. I couldn't believe it. That's fantastic. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate DeGoldie. I'm a writer and a publisher and a reader. Awesome. And what do you think of our Marlborough Book Festival? Well, it's one of the great festivals in the Southern Hemisphere because it is so carefully thought through. It has superb content, very carefully curated collection of writers and presenters. And then it looks after everyone at the festival, writers, and the participants and the audiences so beautifully. Wine is very present, which is of course wonderful, but um, everyone stays in the most beautiful surroundings and are looked after, every need is looked after. And then there's just the communion of writers and, and the communion of writers with their audiences. I've had such good conversations with people after um, various um, presentations. So it's, um, it's, it's an absolutely top happening for me, yeah. So yeah. what other, we've got a little picture here of Market Street in the 1930s. Yeah, um, Girling's store um, features a little bit in the book. That was the main hmm? department store and has gone through a few transformations after, after that. But um, yeah, they, they, they went to town um, to get the necessary supplies. A lot of the food they ate was donated by local farmers next door, dropped at the ga- to the guards at the gate, um, or they grew their own. They, they grew vegetables. Um, they had fruit trees um, on the property. Was, you've got bacon curing in there. Oh, you've yeah. Got... Um, you know, when you're doing research, you find out some interesting things. Um, they, they learned how to cure bacon, so I think I could probably do it now too. Yeah. yeah. Fanta- fantastic. Yeah. Um, so you said about 90% of the book is real. Um, I was astonished at some of the things that happened. We have an earthquake. We've got plane crashes. We have the thing that I was most intrigued in was the Japanese surveillance plane. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? From lots of things sort of got a little bit hidden in, in history um, because things weren't written down at the time um, but there was a, a Japanese um, submarine that came into New Zealand waters um, and they did launch a float plane from the submarine um, and it flew over um, Blenheim um, and it, uh, I have to uh, give credit there to 
um, John Orchard and Barry Holdaway, who who confirmed that you know from their research that that that, that had happened. Um, there was a German submarine that went through Cook Strait. Um, I mentioned that in the book. Um, that wasn't documented anywhere, but one of the wrens, um, after they were allowed to tell people what they'd been doing, um, her husband went overseas um, and bumped into a, a, a man who was a doctor, a German doctor, and he said that during the war effort, he had visited New Zealand on a submarine that had gone through Cook Strait. Um, and that is how I found that information out. There are some other things in the, in the book um, that you said weren't specific on the date, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the, crash, the um, plane crashes, the, the many plane crashes? Yeah, so I, I put a plane crash in the paddock out at Rapara. Um, it didn't actually, I, I'm not, I can't guarantee that one happened there, but they did happen all over the district. Woodburn was a um, training ground for the pilots. Some of those young pilots never made it to the war. Um, they crashed the planes when they were learning to fly. Um, I, gu I guess the, the training was probably done at, at such speed that it probably, yeah, was quite risky. They used to, initially, they used to report the plane crashes in the newspaper and then they stopped doing it because there was so many and it was distressing mm. the locals quite a bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was quite sad really. So most of the story happens in, uh, in the House of Rats Road and in, and, and in Marlborough, but um, there are two other main uh, settings. There's Wellington and also London. Can you just tell us a little bit, I've got another picture here of the girls outside the house, the women I should say, not the girls outside the house. Um, I call them girls. In their, <laughs> their casual uniform outside the house. And uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, researching what's happening in Wellington at the time and a little bit about what which character goes to Wellington and what happens over there. Yeah, so they all did get a little bit of a time away from the house. Um, and... Uh, this might be another another spoiler alert, but um, one of the wrens in the book um, does get pregnant. Um, I am absolutely positive that none of them did. But what I was trying to convey, and especially to perhaps our younger generation, um, that was that there was a, a huge presence of Americans here, um, and a lot of um, American soldiers, um, sailors, um, and there was a lot of backstreet abortions. Um, I read a um, an article about a woman and her war effort. She was a nurse, um, and her job was to um, all the the American sailors, or even the, the, the New Zealanders after if they'd been home, were screened when they went back to the ships. Um, and if any of them had transmissible diseases, then this woman, it was her job to go and visit the woman that these sailors had been with and and get them well again. Um, 
And I just thought, wow, that's so intriguing. And so I wanted to, to weave that, that history into the story. Um, and, and that is why I put it in the book. Um, there are other things that happened in, in Wellington around. There was um, the naval ships that breached at, at Paraparam during the Second World War. And I just saw something about that the other day. Um, there was a bar fight that there you was mentioned. a bar that, fight that fascinated me. Can you tell us about the bar fight, which was is true? Yeah, which that, you have in the book. That 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 is true, and um, it sort of um, oh, it's a long time since I've written it. <laughs> so um, it was the um, American soldiers didn't want to um, to they they um, were into Maori people being in, in, in the bars, Drinking with them in the bars basically, yeah. and um, that was the initial thing that sparked the fight. And it so there was, was probably, there was a brawl, wasn't there? There was a street brawl? There was a street brawl, and it, and, and it snowballed. Um, it was probably, um, you know, those, those men had been away fighting. Um, they'd finally got a chance to relax. No doubt they would have had more drink than they possibly should have and being young men they probably had lots of adrenaline flowing that they want to get rid of so it did snowball and mm. it is it is true yeah mm. yeah um to bring us back to Marlborough again one of the things as I said that I loved I love the food uh that you talk about yeah. <laughs> I also loved the dancers and and uh the the women went to the uh, dancers at various places, um, but sp specifically one that you mentioned and gone into detail about is the granary that you talked about before yes, at Langleydale. Yes. Can you just ex describe that for us a little bit and what you know what 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 happened at those dances? Yeah, well, I, I don't know because I wasn't there, and some people in the audience probably can, but um, I, I, I must give a little bit of credit to um to my husband's auntie there. Um, she was she she was great at telling me all about um, the dances that she'd been to. She initially um, was in Blenheim, but she got stationed to Batoni to work in a um, grenade factory um, during the Second World War. Um, but she used to tell me about the, the dances and, um, and the way people dressed up, um, the stories that I read that, that Bunty and some of the other women had written about, described the dancers. Um, the, the one at Langleydale was, was a, um, a, a country dance, but, um, and um, it was, it was up, upstairs in the area that I'd described um, earlier. But um, one of the things about the dancers, and not so much this one perhaps, but some of the ones they went to at, at Woodburn, was the wrens got dressed up for these dancers um, and the first one they went to they got in a little bit of trouble um, because they turned up at the dance and their finery they would have looked beautiful and every, all the other women in the room the, the ones from the Air Force um, the ones from, from the Delta were all in uniform um, so these girls um, had sort of broken the rules they checked it out when they got back and said, "Well, what, what was the the you know were we allowed to wear dresses?" and they were told, "No, they were supposed to be wearing uniform." 
But what did they do the next time round? They ignored that and they got dressed in their finery again. Um, carried on. They were just about ready to be um, mutinised by the time they were. They left the yeah. Rapara and went to work in Wellington. Yeah. <laughs> so, Colleen, am I working on here, Sam? Um, well, so, what did you find out that? Um, I hope this is not too spoilery, but the, uh, you've got the trip to London for the celebration. Do you know what happened to the women after they had? When, when did they leave Marlborough? What, what year was that? Uh, 1943. Three. And, 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 and do you know where most of them would have gone? Yeah, so after they left Marlborough, um, they were, most of them were stationed in, in Wellington um, at uh, Petone, um, I think it was, um, and worked there um, somewhere in the main office, um, which was in town. Um, they were, um, there was, there was, more reading, there was they were frowned upon by the other women, by the other wrens in that area because they couldn't say what they'd been doing. People will ask them, Well, what have you been doing so far? Where have you been? Oh, ah, uh, yeah, well, uh, uh, and you know, they just changed the conversation. Um, so they were regarded as snobs by the other people at the um, at the hostel. Um, but they did bring about quite a lot of change for the wrens who were the other wrens who were at the hostel, um, because they were doing shifts um, all through the night, and um, they said, "Well, you know, this is not not safe for us to be walking home back to the hostel at, at night." And so they were um, transport was provided. Um, they said, "Well, you know, we're at, up all night." Um, working in the, the operations room and you know, we get a little bit tired some it's not very relaxing there's a, a bed was put in in the operations room so they brought a lot of change um, for the wrens working conditions but they were regarded as as snobs because they weren't allowed to tell what they'd been doing the same thing happened on the on the ship on their way to the celebrations because Two of them were from the station, um, but there were a whole contingent of wrens, um, and they couldn't explain to those other wrens what they had been doing. Um, so once again, they were regarded as being snobby and standoffish. Yeah. Must, must have been quite hard. Hmm. This might be a really good time for anybody who has got a burning question to ask Colleen, anything about her research or her writing journey, anything like that. Does anybody have a question? There will be a microphone just coming around as we're recording for the podcast. Any questions at all? Can you tell me, did you name or have you named any of the eight ladies, those eight ladies, actual names? Uh, there's a, um, in the book there's an historical note and it tells the um, it tells you the names of the women, um, and a little bit about it, uh, the true story. So, um, interestingly enough, um, I think that my mother may have met one of them, but we wouldn't have known that at the time. Um, two or three of the wrens went on to become very high in the girl guide movement. Um, Philippa Tweedy, who was one of the wrens, 
um, when I was a guide, she was the, the commissioning, you know, guide officer, and she was on the world, world, world board of girl guides. Um, and so I knew that name as a kid, but nobody would have known what she'd been doing during the war. Um, there was one called Nan, um, and she went uh, to live in Wellington, and I remember my mother talking about her brownie leader, and her name was Nan, and I just have a, a bit of an inkling that that might have been might have been this, the, the same one. Bunty was a commissioner in uh, Waikanae area, so they were all um, still contributing marvelously to to our culture of New Zealand at the time and the community. Mm. No. No. So the question was, was one, the name was? Ailsa McLaughlin. Ailsa McLaughlin Nee Wallace. And, no. and Colleen said no. No, no. Uh, is there a question over here as well? Have we got a microphone? Are we microphone? I, I, I can just relay, I'll just relay, I can just relay the question. Did you have a question? No? Sure. Um, so the question was, did any of the Wrens get recognition for their services? No, and I think that they should have. Um, when they were first appointed to the role, they stayed as just normal Wrens, but they should have had a much higher ranking. Um, but the theory was that if people knew there was eight wrens of a very high ranking living in one house in Marlborough. It had to be something pretty pretty serious. Um, I don't recall that any of them um, got a awards. Um, they relayed information rather than broke codes. Um, that in itself wasn't easy. They, they had to become fluent in Japanese. Um, as well as Morse, because, of course, it was Japanese they were listening into. So the first thing they had to do was learn Japanese katakana. Um, yeah, so they were very bright women. And I just, I, when I first read that article, I got quite passionate about the story. And I, I know that our, our youngsters read about the Second World War, but what do they read about? They read about the internment camps and the Germans, they don't read about New Zealand and they don't read about New Zealand's war history. And I felt this was a, a big part of it and I wanted to tell the story. I didn't want it to be something that got lost. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, it, it may contribute now that a bit of focus is going back to... New Zealand's history in, in the schools um, because the, the students do like reading about the war um, and I have had um, many read the book um, at school and, and they do enjoy it. I, I think it's um, we were, the, the, the mood of the book is probably quite gentle um, and I wanted it to be that way um, as a contrast to some of the, the other stories that have come out recently. 
um, you know, from the soldiers' point of view and the the gore and stuff that the nurses sort of face. This is this is the war at home, and there's not many books um, like that. So I felt felt it was important to to tell that story. Colleen, have you? What's next for you? Have you? Is there another story out there that you want to tell? Please come and see me if you've got one. <laughs> another question here. I'm not going to uh, offer a story to you. Did the Wrens, after the war, marry and have family? And if so, did you have the contact to them? The question was, did any of the Wrens marry? And if so, did you have contact with them? The families. Sorry, the families. Yeah, no, I haven't. And, and, and um, maybe I should have, but that is one of the reasons why I went for a fractionalised account um, Bunty was the last um, to pass away and um, her family probably would have been quite traceable and I undenied about that a lot and I talked to a few other authors who have done historical fiction and um, decided not to in the end. Yeah. Another question at the front. Did you say um, that they went back to Wellington in 1943? Does that mean that it closed down? Yes, yes, it closed um, before the war finished and that was because they felt that the threat from the Japanese um, was easing. Um, things were starting to happen overseas and, and, and the, the big threat on us um, as a country was, was starting to ease and so they closed the, the station. Um, there was still surveillance going on. Yeah, I didn't understand. Um, my mother, when I was growing up, if the Japanese were mentioned, um, she was quite anti, and I just didn't understand that at all. And it was only when I started doing my research and when I talked to people who had been young at, at the time, how much people in New Zealand feared the, the attack by Japanese. People had um, bunkers at the back of their farms and hideaways and cabins that they, would, they, they kept stocked in case the Japanese attacked. And the threat initially was very real. Um, there, there was a few, um, there was a, a funny little naval incident where they, they thought a submarine was going through Cook Strait and it and it was very close, and the Japanese went out and tried to do some some bombing, some de depth charges to get rid of um, any submarines that might be lurking there. Um, the story goes later that, that they um, bombed a lot of schools of fish, but, um, yeah, their, their skills weren't that great. But the threat was very, very real, Yeah. Any other questions? This one over here. Yeah, um, I think you're a first-time author. Yes. How, how do you go about getting your book published? What do you do? You presumably write it first. What do you do? The question was, the question is, how did you, how do you get your book published? <laughs> okay, so after I had written it, it did sit in a bottom drawer for a wee while, um, and. That was probably a little bit of a mistake because by the time I decided I had a little bit of a health scare, then COVID came along and I thought, 
what you know, and and the publishing houses had started um, shutting down and not publishing first time authors. So I did publish through Copy Press, who deal with self publishing authors, um, and that's the way I went. It's not cheap. I'm only only just broken even. So please, you know, if you've enjoyed my story, buy a copy. Um, put me on the bestsellers list again. Um, and, um, yeah, it, that I could have gone, Barbara's um, a prolific author and she does a lot of e-books. And I could have done, gone down that track uh, much cheaper. But I felt that the audience I was targeting wasn't possibly my age group, um, who are the ones that do a lot of e-reading, actually. Um, I was, I, I thought it would be the older person, and I wanted it, I wanted, I'm a librarian, I like real, real books, I wanted to hold it in my hand and wave it around under people's noses, so I went down the, the paper track, and... Um, it is on Amazon though, Colleen. It is, it is on Amazon, yeah, yeah, um... So that's that's why I did it that way. Um, I'm hoping that that it it gets lot of lots of you know that it, it spreads its way throughout New Zealand a bit more. And um, maybe maybe if I do write another one, the publisher will pick it up for me. <laughs> yeah, but it is very hard to get a book published as a first time author in the current environment. So. If you've got a good story, um, it might be a good idea to bite the bullet. Um, a lot of the money went in getting it edited professionally, and that really is a must. Yeah. Any last questions? We're nearly out of time, but we've got time for one or two more. So what is next for you, Colleen? <laughs> Movie rights. Yeah, I yeah. Could see, I could see it. There's, there's, there's someone sitting in the audience who, um, who, who may write. We may get round to, to writing a script for it. Perhaps um, I could see it as a, as a mini series, um, a movie. Um, Tyker's not in the room, is he? No. Um, perhaps I could send him a copy. Oh, send him his mother a copy. That's, that it's works. We know that it's that his works. Mother. Yeah. That's that's where Jojo Rabbit came from. That's I'll right. send his mother a copy. Um, yeah, I think it would be a great story actually on on the big screen. Um, I think I'd like to write another book, but um, you know, most of the writing was done. Like I said, it it sat around for a couple of years. So um, after a day with um, classes and classes of Teenagers, I, I get home and just put my feet up, <laughs> and I don't know how I did that and actually. Read. And read <laughs> and read yeah. and read, yeah. Thank you so much, Colleen. We are so lucky to have a Marlborough author and a Marlborough story um, at this wonderful book festival. Um, Colleen will be out in the foyer with copies of her book. Uh, Paper Plus have copies of your book. Yes, they do. Today, yep. and you will sign those copies I will. and sign it if you've got your copy here. Um, we wish you all the best. Thank you. It's it's Thank a fabulous you. book, and I think I think it should be required reading by everybody in Marlborough. To be honest, we'll try and get it into the uh, into the New Zealand history curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much.
was Colleen Shipley speaking to Barbara DeLeo at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers who have supported the festival as well as audiences who attended in person or listened online. Please like and subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening.